This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Scott Bankhead, card number 738. Scott Bankhead, pitcher for the Seattle Mariners. Okay, Scott Bankhead, we will get to Scott in just a moment. But first, we have some follow-up from our recent episode about Bobby Thigpen. And it has to do with a hot new mascot that's on the scene in the NPB. I saw on the at Mondo Mascots Twitter account, Haratakakun, a half-pig person with a hammer, is a new mascot for baseball team, the SoftBank Hawks. And he is, as described, a giant pink pig with sunglasses and a cape and a blonde pompadour (laughs) carrying a large hammer that says 1,000 ton. I think that he's styled after an Elvis impersonator with that hairdo, with the cape. He kind of has that look. And on the SoftBank Hawks website, there was an article from Barakata-kun who was introducing himself to Hawks fans. And here's what he said. He said, hey there, Hawks fans. It's me, Barakata-kun. I'm a half pig, half human, born to hype up this season's Hawks games as a hardcore member of the Hawks cheer squad. Later on, he says that he has a name for this hammer. He calls it the Love Mega Pork Hammer. And that those who are down will smile. Those who complain will become positive. And those who are tired will get a burst of energy and everyone will be happy all day long. That sounds like a great mascot. I'm just wondering, on a team called the Hawks, why they've got an Elvis pig running around. Like, what does that have to do with anything? It just so happens that they have 11 other mascots (laughs) who are all Hawks. Harry Hawk, Mm. Honey Hawk, Hercule Hawk, Honky Hawk, Helen Hawk, (laughs) Hack Hawk, Rick Hawk, Hawk Hawk, and Homer Hawk. I think that this pig could have been named Hawk Hawk. Hawk wears a green lined t-shirt and the same color cap. That's his core competency. I don't know why they needed a pig, maybe to feed all of the hawks. That's a grotesque thought, but I do like the thought of the ham hawk hawk. I just sent you this video from the SoftBank Hawks, one of these Twitter accounts, with this pig man dancing and singing, but then halfway through, he gets attacked by this giant light bulb shaped blow up thing that I think we've discussed on a previous episode. And I can't remember (laughs) what his name is, but I would just suggest skipping to minute one fifteen of this video. Got the cheerleaders dance squad. He got a couple guys with the waving flags around and, but Akata-kun had some good moves. Did a lot of this crossed arm move that kind of intimidation. And then the giant light bulb guy just walks over very nonchalantly, just bashes him on the head and knocks him over. And half pig, half Elvis jumps up and tries to fight back, but to no avail. We will have to just stay tuned and see what this little piggy does in the NPB in this season. We're always on the lookout for good mascots. So if you find one, whatever baseball league it is around the world, you can send it to 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. Now let's go to today's card in Scott Bankhead. And why are we talking about Scott today? We haven't talked about a Mariner in a while. Scott Bankhead has a Sabre bio by Bill Nowlin. So thank you, Bill. Scott Bankhead was a highly touted high school player. He was great in college, had a 
amazing streak of wins for the University of North Carolina, played for the 1984 Olympic team, and then had a couple solid years for the Mariners. But injuries limited his time as a starting pitcher, but he returned as a really solid relief pitcher for a few years then later in his career. So he had a couple of peaks in his career and just seemed like a relatively interesting player with an interesting career. Excellent. Well, that's a good reason for a show. Let's go to the front of 738, and we see Scott Bankhead on the mound. He is in mid-delivery. I like this shot for a couple reasons, David. One is that you can't see the ball. The ball is hiding behind him as he's getting ready to deliver the pitch. So you can't tell what kind of pitch he's getting ready to throw. It gives you the feeling of being in the batter's box and being kind of fooled about what's coming next. And then second, you can see that Scott's arms are very sunburned compared to his compared to his very light gray Mariners jersey. His arms are bright beet red. Yes, he must have been spending a lot of time out in the sun. That's got to hurt rubbing up against your jersey. He's got a good mustache, very intense stare going on. He's got stirrups. The one thing about that year's Mariners uniform was the lettering of the word Mariners on the front, but you can't see that. It's obscured by his giant mitt, but I think it's a pretty good card. Yeah, he was not a large guy. He was 5'10", so not a not your traditional tall, lanky pitcher, a little bit more compact, but this is a pretty good action shot, pretty good close-up. You can see his face. You can see his eyes. Pretty good picture. Now going to the back of 738, you have Scott Bankhead, pitcher, 5'10", 175, right-handed batter and thrower, drafted by the Royals in the first round of 1984, born July 31st, 1963 in Raleigh, North Carolina, with a home in Asheboro, North Carolina. Scott was born in Raleigh, the capital of North Carolina, and located in the Research Triangle. He grew up in Reedsville, North Carolina, so northwest of Raleigh, close to the Virginia-North Carolina border. That town was named for Reuben Reed, a farmer and businessman who owned an inn in the area and owned farmland in the area. His son, David Settle Reed, would go on to be governor of North Carolina in the 1850s. Other famous Reed villains include Lindsay Hopkins Sr., who made a ton of money as an early investor in Coca-Cola and then became one of the biggest owners of real estate in Miami at the time of his death in 1937. He lived by the motto, when in doubt, take a chance. And on Wikipedia, he has a giant hat. Another famous resident at one point was Jim Duncan, who was an NFL player and then was a head coach in colleges and in CFL. And he won the Grey Cup with the Calgary Stampeders. Prior to that, he was the head coach at Appalachian State University. And Matt, have you ever heard the Appalachian is hot, hot, hot song? Yeah, it was a long, long time ago. This was an early, you got to just call it a meme, right? This was a promotional video by Appalachian State during that time when colleges were really starting to put a lot of money and time into their promotional videos that might play during basketball and football games on TV you know, maybe Appalachian State, one of those years, you know, they were making the tournament. They wanted to make sure they put their best foot forward. And this is what you got. Falling, falling and living, striving to make our dreams come true. No doubt about it, 
Appalachian is hot, hot, hot. There's so many scenes in this montage of life on campus at Appalachian State that just make you smile like a real like dejected looking kid checking out a book at the library. <laughs> the librarian looks very happy and perky and it just looks like he may be stoned. I think a couple of years back, Appalachian State beat Michigan. And it was a huge upset. And I can't help but think that this video had something to do with the recruiting process that led to that upset. Yeah, I'm sure it did. And speaking of college football, you have in the notes here that Tony Rice. Yeah, not that that, one. Different one. Oh, okay. So not the Notre Dame quarterback. (laughs) No, this is the, the acclaimed bluegrass guitar player who played with Ricky Skaggs, Bela Fleck, and Jerry Garcia on the pizza tapes, among many, many others. He was inducted into the Bluegrass Hall of Fame in 2013, and he passed away in Reedsville in 2020. So this week, I've been listening to a bunch of Tony Rice songs, really a great bluegrass guitar player. And Reedsville had about 14,000 people in 1960. And after some population loss, is right around that same 1960 population of 14,000 now. Scott's given name was Michael Scott Bankhead, but he went by. That's what she said. <laughs> he went by Scott instead of Michael. And I did look up what Bankhead meant, and it, it did not mean like a, a horrifying Gaelic creature with a, a bank full of severed heads. No, it just meant someone who lived on a hill. That's less interesting. Scott's dad, Jerry, was a textile executive, and his mother, Virginia, was a homemaker. He had a brother named Todd, who was one year younger than him. And according to his 1988 score baseball card, Scott was a Golden Gloves boxing champ. He was a high school shortstop and picked up pitching late in his high school career, earning all state honors on the mound. He was an amazing high school pitcher, struck out 176 batters in 76 innings, and had a .37 ERA. Scouts and national publications took notice. He was named the 1981 National High School Player of the Year by Collegiate Baseball Magazine. He was selected by the Pirates in the 16th round, perhaps lasted that long because he had a scholarship opportunity to play for North Carolina, and he expressed an interest in playing college baseball. When the Pirates came to visit him, Scott's family didn't pressure him to sign, and Scott wasn't ready for the pros. He said he was coming out of a small town and his heart was set on playing college baseball. It just wasn't for me at the time. It just wasn't something I was interested in pursuing at 17 years old. And so the Pirates were unable to convince Scott to go pro, and it ended up working out for him. He went to Chapel Hill on a baseball scholarship, majored in industrial relations, but he didn't last all four years. So he didn't finish his degree in those four years because he pitched so well that he ended up getting another chance at the pros. Yeah, in his freshman year, he went 4-3 and three in 11 starts. And after that, he never lost another college game. 9-0 and as a sophomore and third-team All-American. As a junior, he was 11-0 and with 1.67 ERA, striking out 124 batters in 96 innings, and again named to the All-American team and a finalist for the Golden Spikes Award. So between his sophomore and junior years, he finished with 20 straight wins. This Carolina team won three straight ACC titles and also won the team, B.J. Surhoff and Walt Weiss. And that impressive stretch 
got him selected in the first round of the 1984 draft, 16th pick overall by the Kansas City Royals. So going to college certainly paid off for him. Scott learned about getting drafted from the local TV news when they called him for an interview before he heard from the Royals. He hadn't met with the Royals prior to the draft. Their scouts didn't expect him to be available at 16, and so they focused their efforts elsewhere. But when Scott's name was still on the board, they picked him up. Teams might have passed on Scott because of his size. He was only 5'10", but he wasn't concerned. He said, I'm not going to let anybody tell me my size is going to keep me from making it. I know guys 6'4 and 6'5 who can't throw it through a pane of glass. Scott was behind some big names. Corey Snyder, Mike Dunn, Mark McGuire, Odeby McDowell. All of those players would go on to be on the 1984 U.S. Olympic team, as was Scott. As we've talked about a few times so far on the show, that 84 Olympic team played 37 games in their nationwide tour. Scott played in 10 of the games and started five of them. With a perfect record, 5-0, 0.86 ERA, he gave up only six runs and 42 innings, striking out 44. His stats, very impressive as part of that Olympic team. Of course, the competition were not strong squads, let's say. They were pretty much designed for the hometown boys to drum up excitement on the way to the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. But as we mentioned before, the team didn't win a gold medal. They won silver, losing 6-3 to three in the gold medal game to Japan. And even though this was a demonstration sport and there weren't official medals like Carl Lewis would have won, they did get a medal for their participation there, a silver medal that Scott said he still has. Scott didn't appear in that final game. He did appear in two Olympic games, giving up one run over nine innings and earned a win over Italy. Scott said despite a 10-year career, putting on the USA jersey and winning that silver was his greatest baseball experience. To allow him to play in that competition, he signed a contract that allowed him to start with the professional team in the beginning of 1985 so that he could still maintain his amateur status. He had a $95,000 signing bonus, and he spent the fall at Instructional League and then started 1985 with the AA Memphis Chicks. That's a great name for a team. He started slow there with the Chicks, going 0-3, but ended up 8-6 for the season. He won eight of his next 11 decisions, a 3.59 ERA, and 128 strikeouts in 140 innings for his first year as a professional. 1986, he started at AAA Omaha, and he was great. In seven games, he gave up three earned runs in 43 innings. That's a 1.49 ERA and struck out 34 batters. And that leads to a fun fact on the back of the card that Scott was selected as the American Association's Pitcher of the Week at Omaha prior to being promoted to the majors with the Kansas City Royals May 21st, 1986. So that Player of the Week performance got Scott a spot in Kansas City. Dick Hauser said the way Bankhead's been pitching, we had to make room for him. The Royals traded away another pitcher and put Scott in the bullpen. He got his first big league experience, and Scott himself described that first big league experience in an interview in 2018 with U.S. Baseball. I was a starting pitcher in the minor leagues. When I was brought to the major leagues, they put me in the bullpen. I didn't know how long I would stay there, but that was my first experience, and I had been there for maybe four or five games before I got in. I pitched in relief in an extra inning game. I pitched four innings. I think I came in the game in the 13th or 14th inning. 
I was the last pitcher in the bullpen. So I kind of had a sense when I ran out there that I was going to win or lose the game. Uh, we ended up winning, I think, in the bottom of the 17th inning. Uh, as far as the first, the first batter I ever faced was Wayne Tollison with the Chicago White Sox. I think he got a base hit on the first or second pitch that I threw. So I was thinking maybe this isn't going to work out so good. After giving up that single to Wayne Tollison, Scott got the next batter, Harold Baines, to hit into a double play. Greg Walker doubled next, and then Scott intentionally walked Carlton Fisk, but then was able to get out of that inning unscathed. He didn't give up a run in four innings, struck out the side in the 17th, and then the Royals scored in the bottom of the 17th to give Scott the win in his first major league appearance. After a couple more relief appearances, Scott was put into the rotation, initially to cover for an injured Mark Gubisa. He was okay, but was often done in by a big inning. He finished the season 8-9 and nine with a 4.61 ERA. That's a 92 ERA+. plus. He didn't give up many home runs. He kept his walks down, and his whip was 1.3. So not terrible. The Royals still saw him as a prospect. He had just turned 23, but they were also willing to listen to some offers. Yeah, and that takes us to this way to the clubhouse that Scott was traded by the Royals to the Mariners with pitcher Steve Shields and outfielder Mike Kingery for outfielder Danny Tartable and pitcher Rich Lucan, December 10th, 1986. The big name here is Danny Tartable. He would go on to hit a lot of home runs, but he had been an infielder and the Mariners had tried to move him to the outfield. and He was never a great outfielder. And the Mariners were just ready to move along from the Danny Tartable experience. But some Mariners fans were still lamenting trading away Tartable 30 years later. This trade would give the Mariners Mark Langston, Mike Moore, Mike Morgan, and Scott Bankhead as four of their five in their rotation. So they had this good young pitching staff. But again, Mariners fans were still a little bit disappointed to give away that prospect power hitter. And especially going into 1987, when Danny Tartable would hit 34 home runs and Scott Bankhead would give up 35 home runs. <laughs> he did win his first three games, including a complete game striking out nine Oakland A's. And then he just fell off. In his next seven starts, his ERA was six and a half. On the season, he went nine and eight. In 149 innings, his ERA was 5.42. While he still didn't allow that many base runners, this was the rabbit ball year. So his 35 homers conceded were seventh in the American League, which is a lot overall, but even more when you consider that almost everyone had 200 plus innings pitched and he only had 150. The Mariners were close to 500 and Scott was the only regular starter with an ERA plus under 100. So a rough year for him, his ERA plus was only 88. After that rough 1987, he had surgery to remove scar tissue from his shoulder and then missed the first month of 1988 with tendonitis in his shoulder. But when he returned, he was very good. The bad part is that the Mariners were very bad, only winning 68 games that season. But Scott's record was 7-9 and nine in his 21 starts. It's really more a fault of the offense than his pitching. Mariners offense scored two or fewer runs in 11 of his 21 starts. But overall, Scott had the best ERA on the team, 3.07 ERA and a 136 ERA plus. He struck out 102 batters and walked only 38, giving him a whip of 1.13. He was shut down at the end of August to save him for next season. And that rest set him up for a great 1989. 
The Mariners were still under 500 in 1989, going just 73 and 89. But this team had Alvin Davis, Harold Reynolds, a 19-year-old Ken Griffey Jr. And in late May, they traded Mark Langston for a tall photography enthusiast named Randy, who doesn't like birds. But the player on the Mariners in 1989 with the highest wins above replacement was Scott Bankhead with 4.5. He had a really great season on a pretty bad team. So that team, 16 games under 500, but Scott was 14 and 6 in 33 starts. On May 17th, he was 2 and 4. But then in his next 11 starts, he went 8 and 0 with a 1.47 ERA. Opponents hit only 177 over that stretch. And this season, his teammates. His teammates didn't do him any favors. He had nine no decisions where he gave up two or fewer runs. The Mariners lost seven of those games. He pitched a career-high 210 innings, 3.34 ERA. That's a 122 ERA plus. A career-high 140 strikeouts. A whip of 1.189, which was good for ninth in the American League. And he had two shutouts, including a two-hitter against Kansas City in late September. Unfortunately for Scott, 1990 was a lost year, so he couldn't keep that momentum going. He signed a one-year deal in January and made a couple starts at Calgary as he was rehabbing an injury, and then made one start for Seattle in April. He gave up seven runs in an inning and a third. He and the team thought something was wrong. He didn't appear again until late May. The doctors had told him that he would need surgery. But he didn't get surgery at first. He rested a bit instead, made two starts, and was pretty effective, giving up three runs over 10 innings. But then a rough game in June put him back on the injured list. He had season-ending surgery to remove a bone spur from his shoulder. He pitched a total of 13 innings that season. 1991, he signs another one-year deal. And it was another tough year. Between April and early June, he made nine starts going two and five with a 5.48 ERA. He was put on the injured list and made three different rehab stints at low A, then high A, then triple A. He came back late in the year and made eight relief appearances. So the first time since that rookie season in Kansas City where he was pitching extensively out of the bullpen. And he was pretty good. In 18 innings, he had a 3.50 ERA. He was all right. But after that season, the Mariners granted him free agency. He had an offer from the Reds, but it was not guaranteed that he would make the team. Luckily, he impressed when he got to spring training. He was going to pitch exclusively in relief for the first time in his career, which made sense because this multiple injuries and surgeries meant he couldn't pitch the innings required of a starter. And he had said... That was really the only way I was going to be able to stay a major league pitcher. The Reds gave him a chance, and he took it. He was the setup man for Norm Charlton and Rob Dibble, appearing in 54 games, went 10-4 and with a 2.93 ERA, which was a 125 ERA plus, and he was so good, the Reds briefly considered moving him into the rotation. But Lou Pinella said, why risk turning the best setup man in the game into a six-inning pitcher who might hurt himself again? And he decided he wanted to keep him in the bullpen. The Reds won 90 games that season, but finished second in the National League West. At the end of the year, Lou Pinella rejected a contract extension with the Reds and left the organization. Despite Scott's success, the Reds didn't resign him. Bankhead felt like with Pinella leaving, a new GM coming in, he didn't fit in with their plans and they decided to go in a different direction. Yeah, so instead he signs with the Red Sox, who saw him 
as the premier middle reliever in the National League. So he signs for a two-year, $2.6 million contract and was pretty good in 1993. He only made 40 appearances, but he had a 133 ERA plus in 64 innings. In 1994, he only appeared in 27 games. He had a groin strain that kept him out for a few weeks. The first half of the season, he had a 2.45 ERA through late July, and he was pitching well. Then in his last five appearances, he gave up 11 earned runs in eight innings. That put his season line at 3-2 and two with a 4.54 ERA when the season was suspended due to the strike. So that only sort of ended the excitement for Scott in 1994. While the strike many people thought was going to end the season, Scott got traded during the strike. The Yankees thought maybe the season would restart and they needed a right-handed pitcher out of the bullpen, so they bought Scott's contract on September 1st. I don't think he was the only player. I think Dave Winfield got traded maybe for a steak dinner during this period. (laughs) I don't think that they were able to make player transactions, but maybe contracts could be traded. Listeners, if you know the answer to that, I'm sure somebody out there knows what the legality of these trades was. But his contract was sold from the Red Sox to the Yankees. The season didn't restart. So the Yankees and Scott didn't get a chance to play in the playoffs. He became a free agent after the season, but re-signed with the Yankees on a one-year deal that had an option for a second year. In mid-July, he had only appeared in 20 games and his ERA was six. The Yankees released him. He signed a minor league deal with the A's, was assigned to AAA Edmonton, but gave up 16 earned runs in 18 innings and was released on September 10th. He went to camp with the Astros in 1996, but was released the final week of spring training and decided to retire. So closing the book on Scott Bankhead, 10 seasons in the major leagues, record of 57 wins and 48 losses, 614 strikeouts in 901 innings, and an ERA of 4.18, which is an ERA plus of 103. How about in retirement? He and his wife, Kelly, had three kids, Alec, Sarah, and Carson. After a couple years of coaching high school baseball and figuring out what he wanted to do with his newfound free time, Scott started a baseball academy. In 1998, he opened the North Carolina Baseball Academy, which 25 years later is still going strong. They have approximately 110 players between the ages of 10 and 17, and they have had three players make it all the way to Major League Baseball, Brian Mitchell, Joe Mantiplee, and Jalen Davis. And in 2020, they had their first first round draft pick, Patrick Bailey, who went to North Carolina State and is currently in the Giants system at AA. Starting in 2016, Scott was also the pitching coach for Team USA's U18s. He did that for a few years, helping them win gold in the Pan Am Games in 2018 and silver in the 2019 World Cup. An impressive achievement for his coaching career. So in Scott Bankhead, we have a player who was highly touted and highly accomplished before he ever reached the major leagues, both at for Team USA and in college, and then had a decent career, although not the same heights that he maybe had in college. But now that we've looked at him a little bit more, what do we think? In interviews, Scott comes across as very down-to-earth and very humble and also unassuming and almost surprised that he made it because of the small town that he was from 
and he wasn't the biggest guy and he didn't have an overpowering fastball but this is a guy who was the national high school player of the year and then he proved himself in college by winning 20 straight games making multiple all-american teams earned a spot in the first round along with all those big names golden spikes winners this is a guy from a small town in north carolina and he went on to play on team usa surrounded by all that elite talent and between college and team usa he went 15 and 0 in 1984 as a pro he had multiple peaks one as a starter and then when injuries made starting pitching not an option for him anymore he transitioned to the pen and was very successful in at least that one season for the reds and that earned him a pretty good contract with the Red Sox. He's a member of the North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame and the North Carolina American Legion Hall of Fame. And he has a lot to teach. He's been quite successful for 25 years, sending kids to colleges, to the pros. In his Sabre bio, there's three paragraphs where Scott is talking about all the coaches from Little League to North Carolina who influenced his life and influenced the way that he plays and now influenced the information that he's passing along to future players. He takes pride in his and the Academy's role in the development of these players as people and also takes great pride in what he was able to do as a player and as a coach for the U.S. baseball team. Just seems like a pretty nice guy who had a solid 10-year career in Major League Baseball, but also didn't feel like anything was given to him. Felt like he had to work for it and he had to work to reinvent himself. But seems like a very nice guy and glad he's had success in retirement with that baseball academy. Maybe not the flashiest episode that we've recorded. No scandals in the Scott Bank at Sabre bio. It's really nice to see someone like that who had a good measure of success through his career, is giving back to help teach the next generations, and is a good role model for kids who want to try to follow in his footsteps. So a really good story altogether and a good card. So thank you very much, David, for the story today. And thank you to you at home. If you're ready to get out and swing the Love Mega Pork Hammer, just let us know on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.